You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has been focused on the market as a career for the past decade. We take investing ideas or themes we're interested in and break them down, or we speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. You can also check out our work on Seeking Alpha under our respective names, or reach us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the given episode. On this week's The Razor's Edge, we're talking Stitch Fix. The e-commerce apparel retailer has had quite a six months. A strong earnings report in December sent shares higher, propelled perhaps by high short interest in the name. That high short interest took on rocket fuel in January amidst the GameStop frenzy. Then the air came out of the shares, and then the company reported a weaker earnings in March. And then co-founder and CEO Katrina Lake announced she would step down as CEO in August. In that time, shares went from the 30s all the way up to 113 and are now back down in the low 40s. The stock has passionate bulls and bears. Companies' approach is unique, even as they are embarking on a big change. I've been a fan of the model and the company for a long time, though the valuation has always kept this as a small position for me. So where's that leave us? Akram and I discuss on today's episode. For disclosures, I am Wong Stitch Fix and PagerDuty, which briefly comes up, and Akram is long pager duty. One last note, we've both been traveling for the last month or so, and we've been recording outside of our normal environments. Just to flag that, this should be the last episode where we're both outside of that environment, so the recordings should return to a normal consistency soon. Let's get our fix on. Akram, we are covering Stitch Fix today, which I've name-dropped. I mean, it's come up in a few episodes, and they've been recently some new news with the founder or co-founder, I think, and CEO, Katrina Lake, stepping aside as of the end of this fiscal year. So it's an interesting time for it. What do you, I'll probably share my thesis and sort of my thoughts on what's going on, but what stands out to you or what are you interested in hearing about? I mean, I guess we can start with just like, what's your like two minute elevator pitch on why you got interested in it, why you like it? Yeah, for me, this is, It's not Peter Lynch in the sense of, I do like the company. Being in the States for a month, I've done a couple stitch fixes, and I did one the last time I was here. My keep rate, the number of items they send that I keep has been quite high. I've only sent back one thing and three fixes. But it's I found the business model really interesting. The concept of the pitch anyways is, as a reminder to people, is that they combine data modern data science with 
a human element. And that's appealing to me just personally as a way to think about business. And so that's what drew me to the business. And I listened to a few interviews with Katrina Lake back this probably 2017 or 18, found her very thoughtful, enjoyed the story as far as how she built the company. And in terms of the investment case, they've hovered around They've got share-based compensation in there, but they've hovered around profitability, which is impressive to me for a young, fast-growing company. Like net income, I think, has been positive on an annual basis at least a couple times, free cash flow positive. So they're not beholden to the market. They've got a very clean balance sheet. And I think it's an... I'm not sold. There, there are people out there who are more vocal and more educated bulls. Mario Sibeli, I think, is the most obvious one out there on Stitch Fix. And I'm not claiming to have either the expertise or the bullishness that they do. I just think it's a really interesting company with an interesting niche who has some good potentials. I bought into it for the most part in the teens over the times as it's dropped down. It's been a very volatile stock. I sort of, at the time, got to a, I thought a fair value was around 24. I ended up adding a few, quite a few shares of 24 and then a handful more at 36 before it jumped before its winter earnings report. And it's still a small position for me. I'm not, as listeners will know, I'm not, growth investing is still a challenge for me and I've tried to treat it that way. I have sold some shares just because of how crazy Stitch Fix has been this year. And then I also did think the last quarter was bad. So I just sold a handful more shares after that. But yeah, I just think it's an interesting model, an opportunity. I can, and not now that the fluff has gone out of the shares, not a forbidding valuation, I don't think. Yeah, how do you value a company like this? So it trades at like 2.2, 2.3 times EV to sales. Gross margins are what, like in the 40s, I think? Mm-hmm. Around 44-ish. You compare it to like Poshmark or what's it called? What are the comps? Like Revolve, Real? I mean, like there's no pure public comp to the fixed approach that they do, right? There's Revolve, which claims data science, essentially an influencer driven, and that they can, they can essentially do much better profitability because they're going to constantly get the matching to what's let's call it fashionable is essentially their take between what they do with influencers and predictive data there's real real which i can't say is a really a comp since it's like secondhand focused there's a new one thread up that just ipo that secondhand what does that one do exactly I think it's sort of a secondhand marketplace approach. I haven't studied it in depth. So there really isn't, uh, there isn't a comp to like you're subscribing essentially for fixes. What's the typical length that a person subscribes to a, to their fixed program? Well, I mean, it's interesting because they, I think they emphasize sometimes a little too, like one of the things that stood out in their, report that came out in early December, which was received really positively and which is a very solid report. They had a line in there about how many people sign up for recurring fixes. 
I think that's, I don't know that they have, they talk about, they don't give you a ton of retention data. They talk about active clients. They talk about revenue for clients. I, I think it's a little, the use case to me is more spontaneous than a recurring model. And that's why I think they shouldn't emphasize the subscribing so much in their language. They, they offer you to sign, you know, I referred my sister-in-law and she joined and, you know, she's immediately signed up for, okay, I'll get another one in a month. She ended up changing it shortly after. And I can go into that experience more as an example later, but the idea to me is, I don't know that you need clothes on a subscription basis. So I don't know. I, I, I think they talk more about trying to improve keep rates for your first fix so that your first fix is successful. And that's the tricky one, right? In theory, if they can get you over the hump with the first one, then they should know, they should improve from there. Yeah, they should get smarter. Right. So yeah, I, I think the recurring, I, how to value it to me is, look, they, they and it'll be interesting to see, I think one of the things we have right now with the CEO stepping down and she's still at the company and we can get into the dynamics there, but one of the more short-term things is now that they have a new CEO who was previously the president, does that change their expectations? Every investor presentation, they put up their long-term target metrics, and it's something like 45 to 46% gross margins, 33 to 35%, I want to say, SG&A, of which nine, about 10% of that is advertising. And then the rest is, I forget if, the, I think they are calling it adjusted EBITDA, so I don't know if they're factoring out share-based compensation or whatever. I mean, I think you can model this from a DCF basis. You should be looking for profitability at some point. So I guess, yeah, they're not. there's not a pure comparison, but it's essentially if we defocus on how they deliver you, it's just an apparel company, right? And so ultimately or an apparel retailer rather. And so ultimately they should be profitable on an apparel retail basis. And so we'll see what they're again with COVID. The COVID effects here were weird where they took a hit last year on the one hand, because they had to shut down distribution centers. And then I think probably, and you've hinted at this, you don't need, I mean, everybody's wearing sweatpants and they actually make sweatpants, but like, you don't really need a lot of fixes if you're sitting at home. But they also, on the other hand, had a lot of app downloads and they acquired a lot of new active clients. And so they're right now guiding for 18 to 20% growth this year, which was they had originally guided for, I think, 22 to 25 or 20 to 22. And so they lowered guidance after the Q2. We'll see what the, the fiscal year 2020 two is i think it's 2022 what that guidance is when they report in september because that's going to be where we sort of get the new baseline but it seems like the the big question to me about stitch fix is ultimately does this just seem like a cutesy thing that some people do but not a lot of pickup or is this something that enough of a population it doesn't have to be everybody in the world but Enough of a population is like, yes, this is a good way to get clothes. It saves me time. That's sort of the core value prop, which I think is an enduring value prop. Do enough people buy into that as something? And that's, I think that's still, you know, there's definitely still question marks as far as will they acquire enough customers as 
this is a better way to shop than either going through a Amazon-like format where you're scrolling and picking or going into a store. Yeah, I mean, like, what I don't understand about it is, like, what is what is the edge? I mean, you sent, I mean, like, I've seen, what's his name, Mario, you know, and he was, like, an early Netflix DVD era Netflix Super Bowl. And, you know, the narrative there is, the distribu- like, you know, visit the distribution centers, understand what they're doing, how they were doing it. I can relate to that from the standpoint of, like, the, the Netflix pre-streaming was an interesting almost like kind of like an arb on the back end right like his narrative is you know visiting the distribution center seeing what they were doing and how good they were at, at the logistics end of it but i mean netflix had a couple of things that went in their favor right like you were getting essentially bludgeoned by late fees and you had a way around that with the first sale doctrine with respect to being able to make copies if they bought a dvd and rented it and you also had this you know u.s postal service which i mean was like you know a free ride for them in the early days so i mean that was you know i mean we, we, we don't need to get into the details of the postal service but losing a ton of money government supported and netflix essentially took advantage of the shipping that you were getting there, which was very cost-effective to, to run a model like that uh, at, the, at the scale that they were doing. And the established infrastructure. So like when I think about clothing, if you're going to slide in here as a stitch fix, it doesn't seem like it's something that's sliding in and taking advantage of a couple loopholes that like kind of existed in a pre-existing model versus a department store or just the ability to order anything online. So is it on the sourcing? I mean, like, is I've never used Stitch Fix. Is the clothing branded or is it like, is it all made by them? It's both. They, I think they tend to lead with bringing in brand. For example, I've gotten a pair of jeans each time and those are not made by Stitch Fix. American Eagle in my first one, et cetera. And I expect the men's experience is a bit different from the women's, which is still a core market for them. But they do have, I'm wearing a pair of O1 Algo sweatpants which is from them and they sent me in my second fix this month they sent me a couple more i have a few o1 algo is one of their brands hawker rye is another one of their in-house stitch fix things i think people sometimes fixate on this idea stitch fix will try to talk up their data as super you know really smart and we can really and then some people will go look you probably just put people into a bunch of different boxes and it's not all that innovative and i think there's probably truth on both sides to me i think their ability to figure out what fits you reasonably well is a big plus out the gate i mean they did i've got a relatively weird shape i'm a short stocky sort of guy not much of a neck and they did a pretty good i've had to send exchange one thing for where the the shirt size was a little bit small and then i was a little bit actually disappointed because it's the pair of pants I sent back last time were a little tight on me. And I felt like pants often one company's size 31 is not another company's size 31. I would expect Stitch Fix to be able to figure that out. And they didn't quite get it right there. But yeah, I guess the ability to assess fit pretty well. And then 
I think it's just that it's, and this is the question, I don't think anybody else is really taking this angle right now to such a focused degree. And that's that's the resonance with Netflix that I think is relevant, is that they're focused on an angle that not anybody else is really focused on. I know we can go back into the whole Netflix blockbuster thing, but that to me is why they might succeed. And then why is this approach better is to me the time savings and the sense of the way it works is I spend, let's say, 20 minutes filling out a survey when I sign up and then I say for my first fix, I might want X or Y. They send me stuff. It comes relatively quickly. I don't know if they have any privileged relationship with the Postal Service. One of the reasons they cited for a bad quarter last quarter was some of the shipping delays that seem to be plaguing the entire world. But they send you that. It takes, let's say, five to 10 minutes to try on, make a decision. You spend another five minutes checking out online and just leaving notes for next time. And if you have to send anything back, they send you the bag and you just send it in. And so to me, I don't know if you read Bezos's shareholder letter, but he tried to calculate all the time Amazon saved people. To me, that's time savings, not only from the department stores, but from a place like Amazon, where you have to scroll through, you have to think you're not as sure on size, et cetera. I, and I think, I again, think of Netflix from the negative side, Netflix we've talked about this a little bit. I'm always paralyzed on Netflix with trying to scroll through movies, trying to figure out what to watch and worried about investing at least another 15 minutes in watching and deciding if this is worth my time. And so I guess that's the how Stitch Fix works. And to me, there is something there where it's not for everybody. Some people like shopping. Some people are so indifferent that they will just select the same clothes and just buy them. But I do think there's like a range of people who are like, all right, I like to look decent. I like to have different outfits, but I really just don't have the time to go in the store. I don't like to go in the store. I don't want to dig through Amazon or the wherever else. And when we talk about the brands, just to use the jeans that I've received. And, and I'm cautious about Peter Lynch style, I feel like can be misused because then you just look at your example and think it's representative, but just trying to use this as an example. I have American Eagle, something called Liverpool Williams and Warp and Weft as the three jeans brands. I haven't heard of the last two before and I would have never have thought to get a pair of American Eagle jeans. And so there's something where that opened the door for me. Now I can go to those brands directly if I want. Stitch Fix has implemented more direct buying options they call it direct buy but they also have a couple other ones to facilitate if i want to just go back to the site and buy something instead of ordering a fix i can do that i think that's a little bit overhyped but maybe i'm not imaginative enough it's it seems to me like it's a potential way to expand their share of wallet because they've been kind of stuck in the range that they're in for revenue per client for a while they've been in the 470 to 500 dollar per active client over the last 12 months for the last couple of years so this might be a way to expand that but yeah so that's how it works and that's where i think there's in theory uh, getting people into that model and appreciating that and finding the right people i think there are enough people out there who would resonate with that can another company do that that's where the arguments you sort of refer to, Mario was arguing that there's a lot of complicated steps to distributing efficiently, to 
selecting efficiently, et cetera. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just trying to understand the advantage because, right, like Netflix with the first sale doctrine, it buys a DVD, rents it as many times as it wants. And like, you know, this became the debate once they shipped it to, to streaming. You got to re-up for the rights and the rights are fragmented. You know, ultimately down the road, you're just making your own content. You you end up owning it completely. And they managed to execute that versus a blockbuster by buying DVDs. They essentially negated their advantage and they turned it into a disadvantage by having the physical retail store presence and solving problems of like, you can't get what you want. Sometimes when you show up, it's just not in. Add in knocking out the late fees and leveraging the post office, it was kind of you know a perfect storm of advantages from what one you had a happier customer who you know isn't renting Forrest Gump and paying you know one hundred eighty six dollars when they forget about it, and you had better unit economics on the back end because you're eroding the over earning that they were making on late fees. And then they're stuck with that kind of fixed cost around the retail presence and the employees and everything. And you've got like just really good distribution centers. And once you figured that out, that was your edge. So I'm just trying to think of from a consumer behavior standpoint, how much more are you able to delight a consumer, let alone save them money, which was important there. And then two, like on the sourcing and like, again, this goes to like, you know, like something like a revolve where they're branding stuff and making it themselves and figuring out that like they can match the styles, uh, get the influencers to wear it. And they end up going and buying the same thing that Farfetch did when they, when they acquired Off-White, but like the back end that allows that to happen. The equivalent of like kind of like a Y combinator for creating brands from like a in Italy and in, in, in terms of the infrastructure. So when I think of Farfetch, like what percent is doing that at scale, making their own stuff and getting you to wear it? Or like you said here, picking stuff and getting the sizing right. And how are they turning an existing industry upside down? Because Netflix managed to do that, and then they got a you know the, like they got a sweet deal from Stars, and then you know we're not going to spend time on this thing now. But you know it's a well-known story. The incumbents all kind of were split up and highly profitable, and like they were willing to take the checks and so on and so forth. And the market was willing to finance that expansion for a decade. But when you think about this name, it's like how do you get to like let alone escape velocity? Like what's the starting point that like made it a better business because Netflix was a better business than Blockbuster in every shape and form from the start. The minute they managed to get enough people using it, it was a better business. It wasn't necessarily a better business for Hollywood because there was a lot of inefficiencies that they benefited from. And it was definitely a better business for the consumer because, well, you were no longer paying late fees, but like, you know, once Blockbuster matched that, like, you had the ability to just go somewhere and never pay late fees, but that doesn't exactly work very well for the model with 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 covering the entire country with blockbusters. Yeah, yeah. This isn't a pricing element per se. I mean, they don't they give you free shipping. They never charge for shipping. And so I guess there's some, but they're basically charging you, you know, the same prices that they would get on if you went to the retailer directly, which 
leads me, I think, the potential to work with the, not the retailer, with the manufacturer, with the designer. I think the from a supplier basis, Stitch Fix should be attractive. They should be able to source more insights to the clothing companies themselves to be able to say this is what's working, what's not. There should also be better inventory management. And I'm, I'm not good at understanding and explaining inventory turns and that sort of thing. But I think there's something about their model that requires you to hold less inventory per se. And I should, you know, after we do this, I'll kind of try to compare this to traditional retail. But there seems to be like a better inventory management approach here in the way that they can, the fixes, they can kind of plan for a fix. They can look at what works. They can order as needed. It just seems like they should be able to manage that better. And that should allow them for an efficient back end to support the demand from the customer side. But I think the customer story is relatively, it's out there already, sort of what I said, in terms of saving time with some, saving time with a little bit more of a delightful and enjoyable experience. The last time I'll use personal examples where I can get clothes, then try them on for my wife and she'll kind of, you know, she's my personal stylist, but it saves her time and she gets to see something new. She likes to see a new angle. And so that kind of works out well for us. My sister-in-law does it. She actually got jewelry in her fix that she's stuck with. It's like she she doesn't feel confident. She, re- she also prefers to have her sister around to sort of validate the choices. So there's something fun about that. And so I think that's a fun and enjoyable experience. But again, it might just seem quirky and sort of niche. I think from the supplier relationship side, there's something about the way they're approaching where it's agnostic. It's not style-based. I mean, they, they're putting you in categories for sure, however they do it per se, but I'm assigned to a little bit more of a preppy category than I would put myself in. But they're not dependent on what this year's fashion is. They're just, we're, it's, we're just, not to go too tech-wise, but it's just a platform for you to come in and say, I need clothes, I need X and Y. And then they look and they say, all right, well, based on this, this and this, and they are able to work with the suppliers. They get the suppliers full price. They're not, they're not trying to discount. It's really not trying to be a price saving thing per se. They ask you how much money you want to spend. They actually, because of that, can probably maximize over time how much you'll be willing to spend because they know what your range is. So I don't know. Does that does that make sense at all? The the advantages from the supplier end from the the American egos of the world the companies that are actually making the clothes that it might be an attractive channel for them and so those relationships may be stronger and the more efficient than a traditional retail store or are you not buying that I mean I'm skeptical I don't understand enough about that business to intelligently comment but just like based on my breadth of knowledge of looking at things, uh, I'm skeptical on that. I mean, I think what I think is interesting here, which seems to be, and I've read their transcripts and I traded the stock a while back, uh, not recently, but they have 6,000 or something stylists and they're now doing these like, what is it called? Fixed previews. Have you used the fixed preview? I that has I think that's still in beta. I don't think I've seen that. Okay. So I like to think that 
before we go back to the back end, I'd like to think like they got it. Like it's got to be a differentiated experience on the front end. Cause again, you go back to saving time. If I want to find a spare part for my notebook, Amazon, just like, I mean, like they solved that problem in two seconds versus going to an old computer store and, and whatever. If I want a book, they solve that problem in two seconds because I specifically know exactly what I want. Maybe like they've eliminated some of the browsing where you bought like a random book. But when I think about clothing outside of the Instagram type of model, there's the impulse buying. And then there's like, you know, there's the occasional experience where you're like, you're going to go shopping and you're going to look around for things or whatever. And then there is like, let's find like something that just kind of solves that problem because it can be annoying to buy clothing. And if they can get really good at doing it, can you essentially shift my behavior? Because it's not, I mean, to a degree, DVD mail was a shift in behavior, but it was just a better business model, right? This one, we're not at that point where going to the store is the occasional time you're going to do some shopping, such a, such a horrible experience. And the alternative that's out there seems so clearly better and cheaper. Yeah, I guess I, I, I don't know. I think there, I'm not alone. Like going to the store for me is just the rare occasions. I'm, I really don't like going to the store. I mean, I'll do it. And I have, you know, one or two stores where I actually know my sizes and I know more or less what I want to get. And so it's not so long, but I do think going to the store, there are a lot of people out there, I think, who it's not, it's something that they would cut out of their lives if they could for clothes. Yeah. I mean, I think the market is there for like, if you can make it enjoyable and you've got 6,000 stylists picking shit for you and I can preview it before you even ship it to me. Look, it's the idea behind them automating the process. Like I don't necessarily need to be active, but you know, let's say I could create an account, I get a profile and I come back in four months because I don't feel like going to the store to get a bunch of new clothing for let's call it beachwear or summer or winter, right? Like your you, first you need a new winter coat. You need first post COVID event. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. So like, you know, if it can be really narrowed down to wedding, whatever. I mean, again, we know how like what you're what you're looking for there, but if they actually can fit you well i mean fit is the key right i mean at the end of the day mm, yeah. like clothing that clothing that fits well will look better so if you've got that down like that part of the time wasted in a store which is where i think they can this can really stand out is that you do fit better right but before we even get into that, that element like okay so let's say you're doing that right and so i'm not trying on many different sizes and like part of that problem with the store is like, it's not matched. So maybe I find something that I really like, but I don't have it in my size. And then I have to pick a different color or something else that's in my size. So like I can completely see the experience being made significantly better based on what, on what you're describing. If they've, if they've cracked that nut, but like, I'm just trying to understand like how good are they from the stylist then? And like kind of, when you buy something from there, just feeling like they did a better job than you would have done or like 
your wife would have done or your girlfriend would have done or your mother would have done or whatever. Yeah, they I don't think they they will disclose on the transcripts or they won't disclose. They'll talk about keep rates, which is ultimately what you're looking for, right? Is if they're the more you hold on to what they send again, they send you packs of five things. If they can get you to hold on to four, three, five of those things and they do, there's a buy all discount of 25%. So you're incentivized. I've definitely kept one item at least that I was sort of iffy on, but it was cheaper to keep than send back. You get a discount. So that's really the name of the game. I, I think you then go to, if people are keeping stuff enough, they'll be coming back. And so then you go to customer churn, which they really don't disclose. You can sort of surmise a cost of acquisition by how much they disclose, how much they spend on advertising and they disclose their active clients. And so you can kind of go active client growth and cost of acquisition has been, it was inordinately up because of COVID. They had like a first full COVID quarter. They lost client active clients actually. And I think it's partly because they had distribution centers closed and couldn't ship, but that's recovered Cost of acquisition is still pretty high on an annual basis as compared to what the first year or two they were in the mar in the public market. So it's hard for me to generalize too much and hard to say beyond what they disclose. It seems like, yeah, that's that's ultimately the 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 question is how good are they at making that experience? And I don't know how much you can go to reviews, you can try to sort of get third party analysis. Yeah, I mean, like, is it inception or is it like actually, you know, I mean, we talked about the basics, going into a store, trying on several sizes, not getting it right. So if they have the data on it, I mean, of course, bodies change, you gain weight, you lose weight, et cetera. So there are challenges there with, with fits, but if they can do that better, then it becomes kind of like when you get into like, like, you know, when I was reading those threads last year about like why Sitch Fix is the next hundred billion dollar company. Right. You know? yeah. uh, I think that was a little tongue in cheek, but yeah, he's a, but yeah, but like there was, there was a few of them out there that like, you know, made the arguments about what they do well. And, you know, there's this just, just ridiculous infatuation with data science and, and whatever, like, we're not going to get into the competitive stuff. Like maybe you just like, you know, you put on a VR, yeah. you create an avatar and you start trying clothing and everybody in retail subscribes to, you know, that platform. And all of a sudden it's like, are we dealing with omni-channel where like you try something on there, occasionally you shop in the store, are you completely removing the store? But for it to be like, the Netflix angle, you got to think, okay, you got to start out by being, you have your stylist, you've got the best sizing approach for me. So you've solved two problems and you're going to be picking other people's stuff and earning a spread off of other designers. And, you know, you're sourcing externally, like, you know, the equivalent of licensing content from someone else and, and distributing it. But then eventually, your goal is going to be if you get to a decent scale to enhance your margins by basically being like, look, we're pretty much determining what people want. So like it's, we can do we it ourselves. Them, yeah. We feed them whatever and they're going to like it because this person favors this color, this fit, this, you know, and like 
we, we know that already. And that's 95% of the battle. The rest is like, you know, marketing. Right. And and I will say, by the way, they're, the clothes they actually make are all like, I, again, it's guys clothing. It's not the most innovative stuff in the world, but I do like, I'm really like actually impressed with how nice the fabric feels on some of their O one algo stuff. So they have some of that. I, yeah. The, I keep coming back to, if I were to just do a pithy tweet, I wouldn't say I like the stock. I would say, as for me, I like the company. Like for me, it does solve that problem. And I do think the model is interesting for me, valuation wise, depending on what you're expecting, you know, I think the thing I'm really concerned about right now is that they're spending seems to have gotten a little bit out of not out of control but much higher than their their sgna has really been high the last couple quarters and i'm not really sure i don't understand the drivers to understand well enough why that is it seems like are they you know are they again to refer to mario talks about them opening new they're in the uk but then they'll go into other countries and i've seen these types these types of companies in other countries so is this just uh they're opening in new markets or where's the spending coming from i don't really understand that and that's something i'm like a little bit concerned about in the near term but i'm the stock's at about 45 right now i i would probably not add until it gets to the 30s which it very well could do I'm very curious what the next quarter is going to be but the yeah, I guess that's the question. To me, it really does solve a need and I enjoy it. I may not be the typical customer by any means. I want to see more evidence that customers are enjoying and coming back, whether that's net revenue per user starting to grow because they're using it more often, whether it's active client growth, like maintaining. They've had a couple strong quarters in a row. They're on a nice stretch now. They're Trailing 12 months is as high as it's been since early 2019. Can they keep that up? Can they really start to scale that? And the management thing, we haven't really talked about the management thing at all, but the, I think a lot of people would console themselves with the Katrina Lake story. And I think she's, I find her to be impressive. I think it's not all that surprise it's surprising she stepped down i guess i could say you can rationalize it in either positive or negative ways you can negatively you'll say that after coming out with this really bold earnings call in december they then had a really sort of mediocre call lowered guidance missed the quarter by a little bit in the march report and so Maybe they're, you know, the board, the board is basically, I mean, the voting rights are all Steven Anderson from Baseline Ventures owns like 47% of the voting. Katrina owns 22%. And I think Bill Gurley is in here as well, our old friend. And he has, I don't know, in the teens, I think. Could be they said, all right, you did a great job getting the company here, but you're not ready to scale. That's the negative side. The positive side would be She's a millennial. She, when she founded the company, she talked about she was interested in retail, but she was also like sort of just looking for a market. She, there's an interview she did where she talked about theoretically disrupting hunting and fishing as a market. And so I don't think she's like a lifer per se. She's got a couple young kids. She 
is staying with the company as executive chairperson, but also like working on social impact. It's a very millennial thing to do. I mean, I know Daniel Eck is also a millennial, for example, but like you can rationalize where it's all right. They brought in somebody who's really good, Elizabeth Spaulding, and she had a good start. And theoretically, they're going to go into more of an impulse direct buy, which the way that works is you can either they'll propose looks to you, shop your look, or they'll say, do you like this item? Or you can go and say, you already sent me this jersey polo. I want three more in different colors. What do you have? And so there's like, there are ways for them to get beyond the fixed model too. I don't know if that's what they view as the future of the business. And that's why they made the change or whatever. But I, I do think it's interesting why it is, again, not controversial, but there's a lot of argument around it. And I'm not sure what, to, I mean, maybe there's just a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of argument about a lot of stocks, but it does seem like sometimes the discussion can get heated and the stock can get heated. The stock has done, it got caught up in the short squeeze GameStop stuff earlier this year. Yeah, what was that all about? I mean, I just think it's highly shorted. I just think it it was just, you know, whoever it was, I, you know, Archer Ghost, we don't. Another name that fell into into that that bucket. Like they had good news in December, which sent the stock up, maybe an overreaction. And again, maybe because it was shorted. And then, yeah, I think it just got like in the 50s to 60s, it was like highly priced, but you could peg it to a fundamental story. And then it just got crazy in the 70s and on up. And so, but it did that, it, it did that in 2018 or 19, I think, where it got up to like 40 all of a sudden from 20. And then it went back down to the teens. And I forget if I, I think I then bought in after that. Yeah, I mean, that was a completely different market. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's, it's a comp. I, and I guess that's, you know, it's a, what is it? I think it's a five, four to five. Four and a half to five billion dollar company, lower enterprise value, a little over two times sales. I sort of, I don't, maybe I'm thinking about this wrong and I need to spend more time in apparel comps, but I sort of think if they really sort of the growth fizzles, I don't know, one to one and a half times sales as a, as a acquisition multiple in a bad case, that's sort of like they have. They should have some good client data and a selling channel. You cut out the advertising and it becomes profitable. Like maybe that's not the right way to think about it, but it seems like there's not, I mean, there's actually still a fairly formidable downside from the forties, but as you get down towards the thirties and it would seem to me like the downside becomes pretty attractive. What's like the, the competitive pushback argument? There's Instagram shopping. If you're typical, just buy clothing online. Things like Farfetch uh, with luxury brands. Like, why isn't it like a, a threat that like a Farfetch gets better with the uh, data science and the inputs or, or evolve? And they're also bringing you premium brands. And then it becomes like, you know, you want like a five star, four star, three star, two star, or like total budget for a wedding. or for this summer vacation, why can't it be done that way? If you're an online retailer who's competing and you've positioned yourself around luxury, for example, what's the limitation to like 
essentially kind of knocking off the fix and saying, we'll send you, I would assume in that case, like they're not going to want to send you the merch and then get it back like a preview of what you get and uh, a penalty for whatever, sending it back and charge you if there's anything to like, you know, if they send you like an Hermes bag, for example, but like, I don't really know if it works. For, like if you're going to buy an Hermes bag, you probably know you want that. Yeah. You know, you want it and you deal with something like real, real, but if you wanted it secondhand, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like what's, what's everybody else in retail doing to get smarter, you know, from a depart- all the department stores, et cetera, uh, Nordstrom, for example, and like, how hard is it for them to do this? Like, is this a company that like ends up selling to a department store chain or is this a company that can stay at what they're doing and really grow the customer base to the point where like, yeah, like you were saying, like they did say like that, that new fixes were up 50% in Q2. And that was like their strongest growth since 2016. So, I mean, look, those are like leading metrics that I think from an investor standpoint, if you're focused on a name like this, you can get behind, but yeah, I don't really know what you pay for this type of business. Like, is this like a 10 times EBITDA business? Like, have they given like a target range for what EBITDA margins are going to be for this business? Yeah, they, they are targeting about 10% is their sort of okay. to so be like, determined if the new CEO sticks with that, but 10% has been their historic target. So if it was 10% and you were, you know, what's the trade at today? $4 billion? Four to five, yeah. Yeah, so let's say 5 billion, 10% on 5 billion, you want to be doing like 500 million. Sorry, if you were doing if you were doing 10 times EBITDA, it's 500 million. And 500 million on a 10% margin would be 5 billion, right? In sales. So, you're at like 2.2 or so, and they're telling you they're going to grow 20 something. Let's say they can grow 25 CAGR, 3 yeah, I mean, I guess you could say if like if that's what the business looks like, it's expensive because like if you're going to pay twenty to twenty five times for like an apple, you're probably going to want to pay no more than ten times for this. Yeah, I mean, just to I, I I think it's probably if they have robust growth rates, I would think it's probably a little bit north of ten times. Ibita. I mean, I'm looking just my model for what it's worth. I think I have them getting to something like. I didn't put EBIT up in it per se, but they don't. They their DNA is relatively low, and they don't have interest, so it's really operating income of about four hundred twenty million by twenty twenty six, five years out, with revenue yeah. growth. With revenue growth in the teens for most of the like, I, I have them with one plus twenty year, and then in the teens and down. I would you know down to five percent that year. Yeah, 420. Yeah, so but like if you thought that that was the case then, right? Like 2026, and you want to pay in 2026, you'd be paying, you know, 10x because we're going to assume by 2026, you've grown it at outsides, like above average now. And then by then, uh, you pay 10x and discount that back present value today. So it would obviously be an expensive stock today if you didn't think that there was like, grows way faster than uh, like, you got to get up to like, you know, let's say double the growth rate to essentially cut that 
the time in half for it to more than double revenues in the next three years. Yeah, I uh, whatever for whatever reason my I I'm trying to think about why my DCF would have spit out something that's a little bit more positive. I think I'm counting on them building up some net cash, but whatever. It doesn't really to me. It seems like this is there's still sort of a not a minnow, but they're a pretty small fish that they've had competitors come in. Whether it's Trunk Club, which I think was a Nordstrom's thing. Amazon has a personal shopper thing and they have it on a subscription basis for men's anyway, prime wardrobe. And so I just don't hear a ton about people actually diving into them. I do. I think your downside is probably that a department store buys them. And that's sort of what I'm thinking about is your downside case. And I think your upside is that they genuinely find a way to acquire more people like me who think that this is a great solution and that they manage their profitability over time. I think my growth rates in what I gave you were relatively conservative. But yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I think what the exit multiple is, you we, you would have to argue about and whatever. But yeah, I don't know. I I think maybe that's where some of the shade they get is because they are they are an apparel company just using technology and sometimes they get lumped in with tech companies and you know there are so many companies like that. But I don't have much more to add at this point. I think it's uh Was there any backstory? Was there any backstory to her leaving that you heard anything about or no? I haven't I haven't dug into I haven't heard anything meaningful yet. I mean, you know, you saw we all saw that Bill Bill Gurley posted a thread where he made it sound like he was reluctant that she was leaving and now he's still really excited about the new CEO. And I saw the new CEO speak on C- on CNBC, which was fine. I don't have any anything good there. I I sort of speculated in a couple of ways, and that's the most most I can think about where it would be. It does take away. I think there was a story. There are a lot of investors who lo- like the founder narrative and want the founder to be the CEO and want the founder to be involved and caring. And you know, and she's one of the. There aren't a ton of women CEOs, and so that was something po- positive that some people gave it to. It's interesting, by the way, Steven Anderson from Baseline, another one of his companies that he's invested in is PagerDuty, which also the founder is no longer. I The founder there is the CTO at PagerDuty, or is he not? At, at There's two. One, one's not there, and one's kind of like uh, chief evangelist or something. Okay. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe just interesting echo there. So I don't have any great like insight there as far as what caused her to step away. But I guess I think, like I said, I like the company. I like the product. And I think there could be something here. But I, I think it's, I struggle to wrap my head around valuations or have struggled for a long time. I it's more of a growth investing experiment. And even the shares I bought at 36 last November, and it wasn't that much. I was like, I'm just doing this to open this in another one of the accounts I managed just so that she'll have a piece. And then I'm sure I'll add to it when it drops and then it didn't drop. And so like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not pounding the table here. Yeah. Because it's like kind of like if you, it doesn't have, like when you invest in a SaaS stock, no matter what each one is doing, there's like a hundred comps. 
e-commerce now a ton, social a ton. Most of these things have comps that are pretty straightforward. This is like, do you compare it to these four or five names? And if not, like, because like you kind of have this like buy now, and then you got the fixed core fixed model, and they've added this direct buy. And you're like, all right, do you have the characteristics of like kind of just an, a typical online fashion apparel company? And that, like, that's where you kind of sit into like, is there a network effect here that is going to significantly reduce your cost of acquisition in this space for a new customer? And is there some either back-end IP? Well, it seems like logistics, they actually... Like they have figured out, but it seems like they've had some challenges in the last year, just also in the most recent quarter when I think I read their transcript. Yeah. That they were fulfill orders. So like, I mean, that's not the best thing to hear, but it was COVID. But is there something like, I mean, I've seen how they do the packaging and that like, that's pretty low cost and effective. So, I mean, I think that like the, the ability to send you something and then you send it back is, has been made pretty easy. But like beyond that, yeah, like it, are the stylists and uh, can, can you scale essentially on top of, on top of that between the, the stylist and the data you're collecting and does like, you know, customer 10 million become incrementally cheaper and more profitable for you because you can do everything around fitting them, sending them something and making sure that experience is perfect that someone else can't do because you've done 10 million. Yeah. I think that's the right way to think about it. I think the unit economics are positive too. And so it's also to a certain degree, how much does it cost you to get that 10 millionth customer and how, how much does it cost you to keep all the other 10 million before them? Like, I think that's where the rubber meets the road for them. But I think we got to, I think we got to wrap there. All right. Any last thoughts or? No, that, that thing, that's good. I think we covered it. Okay. Wait, wait, wait and see. Wait and see is I think where we are with Stitch Fix. So be interesting. I mean, I, I, I love following the story and I just think it's a, uh, yeah, we'll be good to see where it goes next. All right. Good stuff on this one, Akram. No problem, bro. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.